Ephesians 4 in your Bibles, um, one of Paul's letters that he wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he founded and planted um, some years previous and had not been to see them for quite a while, so he wrote to them instead. And uh, we've been working our way through. Understanding, of course, that when you're opening Paul's letters, what you're encountering is the very concentrated, distilled version of the kinds of things that he would have taught when he was present with churches. And so you have to take care and time to kind of open it up. Now, we've been in um, chapter 4 and looking particularly from verse 17. And uh, having laid out in the early chapters of this letter... Paul's understanding of the gospel and vision for what the church is meant to be as a new community in Christ, called from all nations, joined and empowered by um, the reality of being the redeemed so that there are no barriers and boundaries between us on the basis of any earthly distinctions like class, like skin color, or like um, gender, or anything else that might separate us one from each other, but rather we're one new man in Christ. In the second half of the letter, he begins to work out the implications of what it means to be God's people. And he's interested in the moral life, the ethical life of the redeemed, what it means to live a life that pleases God, and what it means to be a community that gives honor to God in the way that we live. And if we are Christians, I don't want to assume that everyone here is a believer in Jesus, and If you are not, then I hope that you will understand a little bit more about what it means to follow Christ. But if you are, then this is one of your highest concerns, isn't it? How can I be more like Jesus? And how can we as God's people be distinctive so that the lives we live are beautiful and attractive and compelling and call people to pay attention to Christ? Now, I want to read then from verse 17 of chapter 4, and we're going to read a paragraph, but we're going to add that first verse in the next paragraph, verse 25. So we'll read down to there. Paul writes this, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Father, give us wisdom and insight to hear and to understand your word, and let your voice be heard today, we pray. Amen. Now, in opening up this particular passage over recent weeks, what we've been dwelling on is the depressing reality of life without God, what it means to live a life without having met Jesus, and the way that Paul describes the life of those who are kind of outside of the family of God. And he uses these descriptions. He said that they're darkened in their understanding. 
know, by definition, no matter how smart, intelligent you are and how much you know about the world, if it does not include the most important aspect of reality, which is the existence of the Lord who made you, then you're living in darkness. He speaks of this alienation from God's life, which means to be cut off from his joy. And he speaks about the growing callousness that can develop or does develop in the life of anyone who's living apart from God, in which you grow increasingly insensitive to your own conscience and more and more prone to do things which once you might have thought unthinkable. And this is what Paul's been describing, the depressing reality. It's like living in a home completely in the dark with no heating and no Wi-Fi No knowledge of the outside world, just utterly miserable and disconnected and isolated and alone. He's saying that was your existence before you met Jesus. But he said you met him. And when you met him and you learned him, everything changed. The lights came on. Your understanding was expanded and you began to understand who you are in reference to the world in which God has positioned you. Why he made you. What the purpose of life is. What is beyond death what it means to live for Christ in the present. All of these things became real to you when you encountered Jesus in truth. And all of this has been to remind us, this is the the big headline idea that Paul's been pressing hard. He's been saying to them, don't go back to the old ways. Don't walk, he said in verse 17, as the Gentiles do. Now this is the great temptation, isn't it? Always. That because God's people are totally immersed in a world that is hostile to God and also seductive and alluring and appealing in all of the ways in which you see life being lived without God, so often you see only the gloss and the glitter without all the sickness and the heartache, that as a Christian you can start to think, well, maybe, maybe I was better off before. Maybe I'm better off without these commitments. And the danger is always of of drifting and being pulled back into something which ultimately can and will destroy you. And Paul says, don't walk that way. On the contrary, he presses them hard to keep on in Christ and to keep on growing into Jesus. So this is what we've been interested in over these recent weeks. Now, anyone who's walked with Christ for any amount of time and is authentically a follower of Jesus will know that this is the great spiritual battle of life. It is the conflict in which you are engaged from the moment that you profess allegiance to Christ until your dying day when you go to meet him. And it never lets up. There are times when it grows in intensity. The fierceness of the battle feels more acute and harsh and difficult. And there are times when it relaxes just momentarily. But it never ceases. For as long as you live in this body, and are surrounded by the peoples around us. The problem's everywhere, and the conflict is everywhere. And we understand this, that Jesus has made an absolute and total claim on you. To be a Christian is to be somebody who has completely surrendered to his lordship. He comes in as a conquering lord into your life. He is not interested in being a guru who offers you directions and teachings along the path. He wants to be the Lord of your life who rules and directs everything. And of course, the the experience of this conflict is the the reality, the awareness, acknowledgement that 
there's a rebelliousness that remains in our lives, that we resist full surrender because we want to keep some measure of autonomy. We want to experience um, some measure of self-rule apart from the, the rule of Jesus, where our, our, our will is conflicted in that sense. You feel the tearing apart even within you, that part of you wants to say a complete and resounding yes to Jesus, but there's also part of you which at times resists him. And this is the nature of the war in which we are engaged. Now, I'm stressing all this, friends, because... There is absolutely no way that you can live the Christian life without being aware of and prepared for the reality of this conflict in the soul. I think that the language that Peter uses in his, one of his letters is really apt here. He, he speaks in this way. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. And the exact translation, if you're to be more literal there, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's speaking of what a person might do if they were heading into battle wearing some kind of robe or long garment or they're entering a race wearing a robe or a long garment. The first thing you do is you kinch it up and tie it around your waist so that it cannot hinder your movements. And he uses that as a metaphor for what is necessary in order to live the Christian life. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, prepare yourself for action. Be at the ready. Be on alert. Understand that what you're entering into here as you live the Christian life is by definition an ongoing and unrelenting experience of warfare or of conflict. Much of that is internal. Preparing your minds for action, he says, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as you look ahead and you look at everything that God offers you in Jesus, fight hard. Never give up. What I'm saying to you, friends, this morning is that no Christian can survive who imagines that they can have Christ and not choose sides in this war. You know, famously in the history of warfare in Europe of the last century, there's been one nation at the center of Europe, Switzerland, that has maintained its neutral status and therefore sought to not choose sides in a war. Some people imagine that you can kind of breeze through the Christian life in a mode of neutrality, fully participating in the world around you, but also professing to be a Christian as though those two things can exist side by side. And they cannot. When you follow Jesus, you choose sides in this. You are no longer allowed or permitted to be a pacifist, excusing yourself from the violence and the bloodshed of conflict. You're rather summoned and called and engaged into a war from the very moment you say Jesus is Lord. And if that profession or that confession on your lips is a sincere one, and you're saying Christ is Lord of my life, then my brother, my sister, you are at war. Jesus describes the great difficulty of this in many ways in his teachings. But one of the images that is in my mind, is that in Matthew chapter 7, when he described the difference between the wide and the narrow path. And he said, enter by the narrow gate. For the way, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. So he says, the crowds are flowing down the broad motorway of life. 
But then he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. It's a difficult and a hard road to be a Christ follower. It's not that it isn't, doesn't have its joys and its happiness. It absolutely does. And much of the happiness is in knowing that you are on the narrow road and knowing that you're with Christ, but nevertheless, it is narrow and it is difficult. And of course, in that sense, therefore, the Christian life is, is by definition a radical life. It's radical in the sense that you are cutting off at the root everything in you that is contrary to Jesus and building a life on a new foundation that is a confession, a true confession of him. There is no mixture. There is no blending. There is no compromise. And it's not that you don't experience the ongoing failures and frailty of your life lived in, in this world. I know it personally, of course, but rather that your heart is set. Now, friends, I want to take all of this as a given before we just begin to open up one more verse here. Because this next verse in the passage where he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This is in many ways bringing into crystal focus and clear focus everything that Paul has been saying on this theme about the two different ways that we can live and the need to jettison the old in order to embrace Christ entirely. And so what I want to do is I want to take this verse apart phrase for phrase, and then towards the end I want to bring a few very direct ways, applications that are relevant for us today, that are relevant for us all together, I want to say. I think there are many ways you can apply this at a very personal level, but there are some very big themes that are relevant to, for us as God's people in the day and age in which we live, which we need to understand as well. So let's understand this here together. He begins in this way. He says, first, having put away falsehood, falsehood, therefore having put away falsehood. This is the negative. Now, most people, when they're reading, the commentators, when they're reading this verse, they interpret it in quite the narrow sense. They say, Look, this is here now Paul is beginning to apply his teaching about godliness, and he's speaking about the need to live honestly. Don't lie, but rather tell the truth. I don't, I don't think that that is irrelevant here. It is important for God's people to be honest people. It's, it's part of the nature of being a, God, a Christ follower is that if God is truth, then we tell the truth. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. And it is impossible, isn't it, for us to live lives of integrity and lives of genuine, authentic relationships with each other if we are not truth speakers. So I take that as a given. Being honest is important. But I don't think that's what Paul meant here. Wherever this word... <laughs> falsehood is used in the New Testament. In each of the contexts in which you find it, it tends to mean something bigger than just telling lies. It, it rather is to do with the whole system of lies or the lie in which you lived before you encountered Jesus in truth. So, one example of this where the same word is used in one of Paul's letters is in Romans chapter 1. The passage is famous. But Paul describing the way in which the world in general is defined by its 
rebellion against and reaction to the truth and the embracing instead of a lie. And this is how Paul uses the word as an example here in Romans 1.25. He says about people before outside of Christ, they says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. You could almost say the lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, if that's what Paul means when he speaks of falsehood, he's speaking about the system of lies or the worldview in which you once lived before you met Jesus, then you can think of it like a pair of glasses that you put on your eyes that change your perception of the world entirely. It's possible to create, for example, a pair of glasses that flip your image upside down entirely. And if you wear those glasses for long enough, your brain begins to adjust. Your brain will actually override and rectify the image so that it appears to you to be upright. You can no longer perceive the deceit or the lie that's coming to you through the lenses. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it? But it shows the human brain and its adaptability to see the world, to make sense of the world from the perspective in which you are seeing. But of course, the image is still upside down. It's wrong. It's incorrect. It's false. And when the Bible's speaking about the reality of life without God, it's saying that everything is coming through a distorted lens. Everything. It's not that you can't grasp at aspects of truth. You can perceive elements of the truth even if you're a complete atheist. But nevertheless, the entire picture is falsified by the fact that God is not in it. And therefore, your worldview is entirely incorrect or self-contradictory. So when Paul's saying here, therefore, having put away falsehood, he's not just saying, look, let's stop lying to each other. That's part of it. He's saying something much bigger than that. He's speaking about the entire system, the way in which you saw, understood, perceived, felt about the world before you met Jesus. This is why, of course, in the earlier verses, everything that he says about life without Christ is through the lens of truth and lies and understanding or, or lack of understanding. Do you remember how he was saying things like this? He said they're darkened in their understanding. He says they're he described them as having ignorance in them. He said that they've become callous, given themselves to sensuality. And then he said, but then you encounter Jesus in truth. And suddenly all the cloudiness, all the distorted perceptions, all the misunderstanding, all the false ways of thinking, all of that began to be cleared away because now you've met Jesus and he is the truth. Now, what this means then is that Paul is saying something much bigger about our life together than just, let's be honest with each other, as important as that is. He's saying that we need to clear out all falsehood from our speech and our understanding. Now, if we make this a little bit sharper and understand more acutely the kinds of, what this meant in the mind of the apostle, I think we can speak of it like this. That for Paul, what this meant was doing away with idolatry. I say that because going again back into Romans chapter 1, what he shows is that our most basic problem as humans, when we reject worship of the true God, is that 
by default, we become idolaters. We exchange the truth about God, he says, for a lie. And elsewhere in that passage, he says that therefore, and we become worshippers of creatures rather than of the creator. He says they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now this is, this is incredibly important for understanding what the Bible says and diagnoses about the human condition without Jesus in your life. It says you, are, you were or you are an idolater because you have to worship something. The thing about idols the Bible shows us is that the things that we worship are those are what shape us at the deepest, the deepest levels of the human heart. What you love most in life is what you become like. What you adore is what shapes you in its image. And this becomes a kind of vicious cycle for humans because we create the idols of our worship, and then those idols then begin to create us. And in this way, we experience that cycle of decline as the human heart begins to adulate and worship and adore deeper and lies and deceit and, and, and wickedness and forming idols of worship. And then those idols begin to shape us in our conduct, which is why humans can end up in the most depraved and, and wicked condition imaginable. Now, I know some of you may think this just feels a little bit distant from your day-to-day -day experience. But for, this, for the Ephesians to whom Paul was writing, the falsehood in which they had once lived was very explicitly a life of idol worship. They had one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world in their city, the temple to Artemis. And an Ephesian was a worshiper of Artemis. That's what they were. And the version of Artemis that they worshipped, because there were multiple versions in the ancient world, the version of Artemis that they worshipped, when you look at the excavated carved idols, was this female figure wearing what looks, scholars aren't even sure what they are, but lots of bulbous objects across her chest. In the ancient world, one of the, one of the early Christian writers said that there were, there were breasts but actually, when you look at it, they don't look like breasts. And more recently, people said, no, they're, they're testicles. But whatever it is, she represented fertility to the Ephesians. And so they were given over to the cult of fertility and the worship of this goddess. And therefore, it begins to make sense when you put the pieces together and understand what Paul's saying here about their life before they met Jesus. How he describes them as having been having given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Can you see the connection? If you worship gods or goddesses, then the things that, that characterize them become the things that characterize you. That's why in Israel's history, when they worshiped gods like Molech and Baal, they became murderous, sacrificing their own children. Now, all of that, as I said, can feel distant to us, can't it, in the 21st century? Because none of you, almost none of you, I would say, perhaps there's been a few, but for the vast majority, your life was not characterized by the worship of carved idols before you met Jesus. But the idols today are no less powerful or present. In many ways, Christianity so ridiculed 
idol worship that it was the Western world was cured of carved images long, long ago. But that does not mean that our hearts are any less prone to worship idols. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. We manufacture them from within. And so for today, if you want to discern what are the idols that we worship, there are various tests you can apply. One way is to go through a city, the cities of our nation and ask yourself the question, what are the biggest buildings that we are building? Once upon a time, it was the churches and the cathedrals, representing, of course, that that was our highest sacrifice to worship God. But these days, it's the banks of Canary Wharf or the malls, the shopping malls of consumerism. It may be the stadiums in which we house our mini idols, the sportsmen who run around and kick things. And, um, and of course, the hospitals, you know, we worship the idol of health, don't we, and of, of long life. And so we build these monuments to those things. Now, I'm not saying that those institutions are inherently evil. On the contrary, we're called to live and be immersed in them and redeem them for the glory of Jesus. But it is indicative of the day and age in which we live that our treasure is poured into these monuments, these symbols of what it is that we value and what we care for. That's one way. Another way is you begin to pay attention to the images, those things that we portray in image, the stories that we tell, the songs that are written. And when you pay attention to these things carefully, you can rapidly discern the idolatries of the human heart, even if they are not physically carved images. They are there, they are as powerful, they are as real today as they ever have been. And so no matter how much a person might confess himself as a secularist or even as an atheist who believes in no gods, every human is a worshiper. It may just be the case that we worship other things like money, like power, like success, like health, like sex. And if you were to ask, well, what is the greatest idol? The one that rules and which is influencing and affecting the church of all others today. Surely, living in the age of humanism, the idol that we are, the idol worship that we are immersed in in the modern secular world is the idol of self. The elevation of the individual to the place of self-leadership and self-authoring where you are the Lord of your own life and you can express or discover who you are in order to live the authentic life. And that, to me, is the highest form of worship that we're seeing in our day and age. It is all focused upon the self. Now, I want to bring this to a point here, friends. What this means is this. When Paul says to these Ephesian Christians, put away falsehood, you could paraphrase what he's saying in another way and say, do not be syncretists. A syncretist is somebody who worships two different gods, who blends religions. Whenever Christian missionaries have gone into new cultures and preached about Jesus, they've had to wrestle with the problem of syncretism. And this is what Paul is wrestling with even here. The temptation in the hearers to blend the new with the old 
to become worshippers and confessors of Jesus as Lord, but also to keep some of the old worship alive. You see this, in their context, it was the fact that the Greeks had a habit of doing this. They, if they learned about a new God, they joined the new God into their pantheon of gods, the array of gods, so that Jesus could sit alongside Artemis and we can worship Christ and be sexually immoral at the same time. In our day and age, you know, if you went into parts of India, you'll discover many, many passionate radical Christians, but you'll also see that one of the great challenges that they have to wrestle with is the danger of syncretism. The temptation to just put Jesus in the pantheon. It's more acceptable, isn't it, than denying the Hindu gods. In other parts of East Asia where there's the worship or the prayers to ancestors, you may walk into a Christian homes where occasionally you'll discover still the shrine where the incense is burned to the ancestors still present. So syncretism is the problem that I believe Paul is addressing here. Having put away falsehood, he says, And if syncretism is a problem that becomes more obvious and explicit when you're walking into a situation in which the gospel is directly in competition with or in conflict with false religions, do you not think that syncretism is as much of a danger for us as it is for them? It just takes a slightly different form. Syncretism is a temptation when the old gods still have a hold on you still have sway on the human heart. So that insofar as you are tempted to be drawn into the same pursuits and the same vision of success and the same vision of the good life that is true of everyone outside of the church, as far as that tempts you, then you are tempted to be a syncretist, to worship two gods or multiple gods at the same time. And in this situation where we're tempted to worship self, That seems to me to be the heart of the conflict. Are you going to fully surrender your life to Jesus in the denial of the self, or do you want to preserve the self and its desires and its expression, even over against the explicit teachings of Jesus? When the church begins to kowtow to this and becomes syncretist, The church then becomes a mirror of the world around it, a mere reflection. I may have a uniquely cynical perspective on this, but I think it is fair to say, as I'll show you later, that by and large, the reason why the church in our nation is so limp and ineffectual is because of this fundamental problem, the problem of syncretism. The fact that we do not want to slay the idols, but rather to indulge them and bring them alongside our worship of Christ and somehow find agreement between the two. And it's killing us. We're created something of a bastard religion. The illegitimate offspring of Christianity marrying secularism and the worship of self. And so, friend, You may feel that the things that you hear in this church are too black and white, too binary, too strong, too forceful. 
But I do not think that we could be stronger than what is written in these letters and is in the Gospels. When Paul says, put away falsehood, he's saying, kill the idols. Now, he then immediately adds to that the positives. He says then, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And if, of course, this is not just to do with being honest people, it's about the truth with a capital T, then we must be very clear that what we're speaking about here is a pure and unalloyed understanding and articulation of the reality of Jesus. The Jesus that we see in Scripture, not some twisted and perverted version. Jesus says about himself. Remember what Paul said here, by the way, in Ephesians 4, in the earlier verses. When he said, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul says, of course, what he's saying there is that Christ is the truth. And this is what Jesus says about himself. You remember this verse, the famous one in John chapter 14. Where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only is Jesus saying that he is the embodiment of truth, but he's saying that he exclusively is the embodiment of truth. You will not find truth elsewhere, not perfect truth. Now a Christian then, friends, listen to me. A Christian is somebody who has been confronted with Jesus in truth and has accepted him entirely as the truth. Listen to how John puts it in the first chapter of his gospel. He's speaking about the coming of Jesus into the world, and he says the true light, because light and truth often belong together in Scripture, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus taking on human flesh, he means. Christ being born of a woman. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. It's his world, after all. Yet the world did not know him. He came, into, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He says this, Christ came to divide humanity. He came into the earth to divide humanity. That on the one hand, there are people who see Jesus and perceive all that he says and is and do not know him as the truth and therefore do not believe in him and turn away from him. And then there are those who by definition are saved because they have accepted Christ as the truth. And there is no mixture in the middle. There is no middle ground here. It's not that you can be somebody who likes to have a partial Christ an aspect of Christ, elements of Christ, self-selected portions of Christ, to encounter Jesus is to encounter one who confronts you and says, I am the truth. And to be a Christian is to receive the entirety of Christ, the whole Christ, unmixed. And yet so many people want to be selective in their approach to Jesus. Like one of my children, when 
my wife serves up a wonderful plate of food. And what do they do? The younger ones like to examine the plate and pick through and extract every element that they're not interested in eating, which is usually the best stuff, right? The healthiest stuff. And yet, so tragically, we're as childish and as babyish as that when we imagine that we can come to Jesus and accept the pieces of him that we like and reject those aspects that offend, confront, and kill us in the flesh. And when we have only a partial Christ, ignoring and whittling away those elements of his teaching and of his demands that are offensive to us, what we end up with is a Christ made in our own image. In other words, we've returned to idolatry. It is the whole Christ or it is an idol. And accepting the whole Christ is the reason our faith is hard, friends. It's the reason why it's hard. Because no matter where you live and in what culture you are immersed, there is some part of who Jesus is that is directly at war with everything that you feel intuitively because of the world in which you are immersed. But Christ calls you to unconditional surrender when you follow him. And that will mean profound discomfort, the violent internal clash of allegiance, whether you want to go this way or this way. I think perhaps a story which captures this most vividly and beautifully for us in the Bible is the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. He absolutely, this young man has a desire to live for God. He does. I don't question that there is some sincerity in him. He really wants to live a holy life. And so he comes to Jesus proactively with the question. He's representative, in other words, of so many churchgoers. And he comes to Jesus with the question of how we can inherit eternal life. And Jesus begins to list off commandments. And he says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In other words, he's saying, Live a perfect life. And the, the rich young man turns to Jesus and says, all these, all these I've kept from my youth. I've got it together. Am I not okay? He, he wants Christ's stamp of approval, his stamp of authenticity. He wants, the, he wants the seal to mark that his faith is genuine and real and that he has a saving faith. But Jesus, of course, is, is brought him into a bit of a, a trap here, exposed the conflict of his heart, the idol of his heart. And Jesus sees him, knows exactly what the problem is, and puts his finger right in the softest, most vulnerable part of his soul and says this to him. He says, one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and come. Follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. It's not a demand that Jesus makes of every Christ follower. But he makes it of this man because this man's idol is his love of his possessions. When Christ sees an idol, he comes in with full force. He comes to smash and to destroy. You feel the tension in the young man's heart that although he sincerely wants to live a holy and godly life, there is the one thing that he cannot let go of. Brother, sister, the question is, is there the one thing in your life that you know is your idol? 
that is displeasing to Jesus, that is contradictory to a confession of Christ. That is the thing, friends. Paul says, speak the truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members one another. I want to just round off our understanding of this verse here. Because what he's showing us is this. That the reasons why this is so vital and important is always the greatest battle that each one of you must face in your own heart. It's not just for your own sake, but rather because as God's people, we are members, we are connected each with one another. And the negative view of this is that where sickness enters into the human soul, where you begin to become an idol worshiper or you preserve your idols, like any disease that has the potential to harm the entire body. So if you have a limb that's gangrenous and you leave it and do not treat it or do not amputate it, the gangrene destroys the entire body as the blood becomes septic and infection kills you. Or if you discover that there is a malignant tumor in some part of your body and you fail to act, you fail to seek treatment, you fail to operate and excise the thing, that tumor will eventually, in its malignancy, take over your entire body and kill you. And this was Paul's concern. If the church has people within it, if the church is full of people even, who are wanting to marry their, their love for Jesus with their love for other things, and therefore still live the falsehood of idol worship, says eventually that will destroy the whole church. So we've seen time and again through church history. This is why you cannot be too strong on these issues because the contrary is also true. Where there is a genuine, passionate, devotion, zealous commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ to cut out and to kill and to slay those idols in your heart that are contrary to the worship, the pure devotion to him, Friend, you can bring health and life and even revival to the people of God. You become an agent of His grace when people see in you someone who is entirely willing to follow Christ with everything that you are and have. You become a, speak, a truth speaker. And when people hear the truth on your lips, they know that it is genuine, that it's authentic, that it comes with integrity because Christ is clearly and evidently the Lord of your life and nothing else holds sway on you like he does. That is the goal of the Christian life. And by living in such a way, because as Paul says, we're members of one another in speaking the truth and confessing Jesus wholeheartedly, in this way we bring health to the whole body, which means, friends, that you are as responsible for the church as I am. Never underestimate the power that you possess in being someone who is sold out for Jesus entirely. Now, I wanted, as I told you, to wrap this up with a few observations or applications that I think are particularly pertinent to the day and the age in which we live. I think one of the ways in which the church is most being pressed One of the ways where you see the, the battle at its most violent, in other words, between the conflict of following Jesus and his teachings and what the world believes and accepts is self-evidently true. To my mind, the conflict is hottest right now 
in the areas of our sex lives and of our sexuality. I say this because although there are many idols that we're surrounded with, I don't think the world is really fighting with us over them. So although we see the worship of mammon, of money in the world around us, no one's saying, hey, you Christians, you're just too fanatic and bigoted in your view about money. It just isn't a conversation you see or hear. If you, see, if you recognize that there's an idol of power, of course it's an idol, and we're all tempted towards these things. But we never hear conflict there. It's not like anyone's pointing at the church and saying, you Christians are too humble. You know, you really, you know the way that you, you're really so adamant about getting rid of abusive power structures, flipping neck, you guys are so bigoted. That's just not a conversation that you hear happening. In fact, in many ways, our, our teachings on this are very much in sync with the spirit of the age and the newfound recognition of the dangers of, un, of unfettered power. But, but the same is not true, is it, in the area of sex and sexuality? In that particular area of life, what we rather discover is that there is a fierce defense of this idol that is often even defended within the church and not just outside of it. And so, you know, sometimes we as Christians are accused of being overly preoccupied with these matters. And they say things like this. They say, look, the problem is that you, you think that this is, you act like this is the only sin or like it's the worst sin. To which our answer should be, no, the reason why we have to speak on this is because the world is obsessed with these matters and is constantly advocating and defending the narrative of, of absolute personal free indulgence of your desire. And therefore, for us to neglect to speak into this issue is for us to fail to defend our view of reality as Christ defines it at the area which is most vulnerable. So if you imagine that in a sense, the Christian church from its inception has been like a city under siege. If you are the leader or the mayor or the king within a city under siege, what do you do? You pay attention to the vulnerable parts on the wall. You pay attention to where the attacks are coming, where the archers are absent, where there are breaks and cracks in the wall. And you put reinforcements there. So it's not the case that we're overly obsessed with these issues, but rather that we are relentlessly under attack in this area. And all of you feel it. You'd have to be blind and deaf not to be aware of these issues right now. And I want to highlight just a few areas where I think this is pressing us hard. The first is in the very general sense that we are called the constant siren song of the world around us is to worship and submit to your sexual desires, whatever they may be, and to idolize sex. I was reading over this last week a book by a sociologist, a Christian sociologist who teaches at a university in the United States. And he's surveyed Christians all over the world. And what he describes there is the dismaying reality that Christians increasingly resemble the world in which we live and no longer are different from it, particularly in the area of sex and our understanding. So that no longer do we believe that sex is sacrosanct and to be preserved within marriage but rather Christians increasingly are thinking that it's normal and minimizing the problem of sex outside of marriage or of co cohabitation. 
And therefore, we become syncretists. We say that my commitment to follow Jesus is not incompatible with me fulfilling my own desires according to my own view on what is appropriate. And therefore, we worship him and we worship ourselves at the same time. We're syncretists. Let me mention another way, a more specific way in which this is becoming very relevant to us right at this, this moment, even in recent months, is the pressure that is on the church to embrace same-sex unions. And the reason why I mention this is because we've reached something of a pivotal moment in our history as a nation on this issue, because the state church, to which we do not belong, I want to stress, but the Church of England with its bishops in the House of Lords and its churches in every village and town of our nation, has recently convened a gathering of its bishops to discuss this matter. And what they came up with was a number of a proposal that they want to put out to the Church of England generally and internationally, the Anglican Church as well internationally. And it contained a number of contradictory statements on, this, on these issues. What they said was, in the same breath, they said, we're not changing orthodox, our doctrine on the issue of marriage, which is that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, as the Bible teaches. They said, we're, we're still upholding that doctrine. But then in the same breath, they said that we want to make space for other expressions. And this is how they put it. They said, under the proposal, same-sex couples would still not be able to get married in a church, but could have a service in which there would be prayers of dedication, thanksgiving, or God's blessing said over the couple. They said the formal teaching of the Church of England, as set out in the canons and authorized liturgies, that holy matrimony is between one man and one woman for life, would not change. And you think, you read that, and you think, Am I, is it just me? Or is something wrong here? that they have so tangled themselves up in their own lies that they can't even see that they are deceiving themselves. They're contradictory statements to uphold orthodox doctrine and then to bless that which God says is cursed. And tragically, it's going to please no one. This will undoubtedly cause a schism and a divide in the Anglican church and we'll all be the poorer for it in the short term at least as the church begins to collapse. It's been collapsing for a long time, but I think this will accelerate it. And it's tragic because, you know, it cannot please anyone. On the one hand, there are those who fully want to embrace the world's doctrines on these issues. And they're not happy because the church is saying, no, we, we're still maintaining orthodoxy. And then there are others who say, no, we, we've heard the teaching of Christ on this. It's crystal clear in Scripture. And they're not happy because the church wants to bless that which God curses. And so we end up with a situation in which no one's going to be happy and division is inevitable. And why? The answer is because it's syncretism. friends. Because there is not the courage and the clarity of mind within the church to see that Christ defines truth and then to listen to him and agree with him as opposed to the world around us. And so those worshipping this false idol have managed to mingle this idolatry with the worship of Jesus. 
And friends, this is deceit. It is what Paul says here is falsehood. Imagine if we as elders, you know, just to underline this point, but it's, it's, it's a, imagine if we said to you, listen, we want to uphold the biblical doctrine of salvation, that Christ is the only way to the Father. But we're going to loosen our practice around baptism. We'll baptize anyone, really. You know, I don't mind if you, if you are an atheist or an unbeliever or follow another religion. In fact, I don't care how you live at all. We'll baptize you. We'll welcome you. You'd see through it, wouldn't you, in an instant. You'd say, that's contradictory. The only way you can do that is when your head is so tangled up in lies that you can no longer see what truth is. What should our assessment of these things be? Friends, I want to agree wholeheartedly with what that statement that was issued by them said, that we are here to love everyone, regardless of the desires that they experience and feel, and help them discover a relationship with Jesus. But I want to say as emphatically and clearly as I can, the only way that you can love people truly is by presenting to them the whole Christ. And that none of you who are followers of Jesus have not experienced some conflict in your heart in which something has had to die in order for you to become a Christ follower. And we're not unfairly isolating one specific aspect of human existence. It's true of everything, every temptation we face, every wrong desire we experience, every part of us. And there are brothers and sisters in this room who are passionately seeking to follow Jesus and crucify the flesh in this specific area, and I honor you. Let me name one last thing before I close. There is, of course, then the pressure to conform in thought and speech on these issues of transgenderism. Now, I don't want to go into this in any depth. Perhaps there'll be a time and a place for it, but many of you are feeling the pressure and the conflict that's emerging in your own minds and hearts around this issue because of the relentlessness of the messaging that we're hearing. Whether it's a pressure to, to, to you know, even if something as subtle as needing to put your pronouns on your email signature, or to enter into the diversity classes that are now compulsory in so many workplaces, and the risk of misgendering and the likelihood of being fired. And I want to just ask with you the question, Friends, what is it that is so troublesome? What is at stake here for us if we're followers of Christ? It is not about how other people choose to live their lives and express themselves. That is none of my business. But what it does boil down to in Scripture is the eighth commandment, that you shall not give false testimony. In other words, it always comes down to our ability to be speakers of truth and not of lies. And the reason why this particular issue is such a vital test case for Christians individually and for the church at large is because it reveals whether we really have a commitment to truth, whether we think words contain truth, whether they are true representations of a thing. So does the word man mean anything? Or is it a flexible word that can be redefined, or the word woman. 
And I tell you, friends, I know that there are deep philosophical trends that have fed this particular cultural moment that is, that is upon us right now that go right back into the middle of the last century. But all of it stemmed back to those thinkers and philosophers who began to cast doubt on the, the power of words to convey truth, whether there is such a thing as truth and whether words have truth attached to them. And as Christians, we emphatically say, yes, there is, and yes, they do. And if we give up that, then we give up everything. Friend, I want to close and just say this. What Christians believe together and what we believe as individuals are deeply entwined realities. And I want to call you, brother and sister, to examine yourself. To look into your own heart and see if there is anything in you in which you could say, look, I am walking in truth and in falsehood at the same time. I'm confessing Jesus and I'm still worshiping an idol. I'm saying I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm also denying it by this aspect of my life. And so far as there is a syncretism in your soul, The demand of the gospel is kill the idol, speak the truth, put away falsehood. To live in the middle is miserable. Anyone who's tried it knows that. You cannot experience the full comfort and the reality of Christ unless you embrace him entire. And it can be hard to believe that, can't it, when the sacrifice you have to make is painful and agonizing but you only discover the joy of the whole Christ when you slay the flesh, when you kill the idol, when you put away the falsehood. And then in embracing Jesus, without reservation, unconditional surrender, the entire giving of yourself to his lordship, it is in that experience that then his joy is communicated to you without reservation. It is all or nothing, brothers and sisters. That is the only vision of the Christian life which is relevant and true.